presence of everyone this evening. Really glad each one is here tonight. It's uh, encouraging to me just to see the commitment that people have made uh, to worship God and to serve Him. And uh, not only the commitment, but the interest that people have in spiritual things come out here on a Sunday evening and spend time in worship together, singing and praying together and study from God's Word. As I come to the church building on Sunday mornings. I pass by the ice rink over here a lot of times, and there are people there. They're inside. They're skating. I suppose there's hockey practice, I think, is what's going on uh, usually. Maybe some games going on. And I just think, you know, people are out doing lots of things in the world, uh, but uh, we've chosen to be together and serve God and worship Him and encourage each other along the way. It's very encouraging to me, very impressive to me that uh, all of us have done that. I, I appreciate it a great deal. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 to preach the word. Uh, Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Preach the word. Uh, one good way to do that is just select a passage and uh, work your way through it and uh, explain it and, uh, and apply it. That's what I try to do I wouldn't say all the time I preach topical sermons like everybody else does. But a lot of times what I want to try to do is select a passage. There's an idea that I've come across or something that I think we could, we could use and we could need. Select a passage that addresses that and just, like I said, explain it. Or here's what it says. Here's what it means. Here's how it applies. And that's preaching the Word, I think. That's, that's one way to preach the Word. There are times when we need to gather from various passages uh, what the Bible says on a subject and put that together and explain it. But again, a good way to preach the Word is just, here's a passage, here's what it says, here's what it means, and here's how it applies. And that's pretty much what I want to do tonight. So let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians tonight. 1 Corinthians. The Scriptures frequently tell us about God's promise to grant certain promises or certain gifts to His people. God will make a promise. I'll give you this. Uh, sometimes that's on a conditional basis. Meet these conditions and I'll give you this. Sometimes it's just, I'm going to give you this. The word inheritance or inherit is often found in connection with these promises. We know what an inheritance is. I've inherited certain things from my mother and father. Maybe you've inherited certain things from uh, your mother and father, maybe, maybe other people. And inheritance is, is, is something of value. And it, it might just be sentimental value. It might not be monetary value. It might just be sentimental value. But it's something of value that's set aside or, or reserved that will be passed on to another. A lot of times it's a child. It's not always a child but passed on to another when that, the owner, when he, when he dies. And so that's the idea of a, an inheritance or to inherit. And the one that inherits the object is the heir. For example, the Bible talks a lot about the children of Israel inheriting the land of Canaan. And so God has set aside the land of Canaan. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so, and so the earth belongs to God. He's the owner of it. And so he had, in the Old Testament, set it aside, reserved it to be passed on to the children of Israel. And so uh, we can read about them inheriting the land. Here's a good example. Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. 
Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Uh, thus the land rested from war. And so God had promised Israel, I'll give you this land. Joshua leads them into the land, defeats the occupants of the land. They control the land. They can drive everybody out, but they controlled it and possessed it. And so that's the idea of inheriting God's promise. God has an inheritance for His people today. Uh, look at uh, Acts chapter 26, or rather uh, Acts chapter 20. Uh, let's see, Acts chapter 20, and let's see what verse I want to take a look at. Uh, Acts 20 and verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so the New Testament speaks of an inheritance as well. And so God has something reserved, something set aside, that He's going to give to His people. Now, it's not a physical inheritance. It's not uh, made of material. It's not made of material, physical material. It's a spiritual inheritance, at least the inheritance that we have in mind in this lesson. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and then read that last part, reserved in heaven for you. And so here's an inheritance it's not spirit, it's not physical, it's not made of material things. It's reserved in heaven. It's a spiritual inheritance. Now we saw a moment ago from, from Acts chapter 20 that this is reserved for those who have been sanctified. We see another idea in the book of Colossians chapter 1 in verse 12. We give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And so this inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. It's not, it's not material, spiritual. It's reserved for those who are qualified and those who are sanctified. Sometimes this inheritance is referred to the eternal kingdom. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, by doing the things he's been talking about in the passage, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. And so we're going to enter into our inheritance, the eternal kingdom. But most of the time, we just call it heaven. And so God has reserved a place in heaven for us, in the eternal kingdom. Now, we know heaven is going to be a wonderful place. We read of it, a description of it in Revelation 21 and 22. But notice again that these passages we've read suggest that not everybody is going to inherit what God has set aside. Not everybody is going to inherit it. Made a point a moment ago that it's reserved for those who are sanctified. Now, not everybody in the world is sanctified. And it's, it's reserved for those who qualify. And not everybody in the world qualifies. And so that's a kind of a difficult truth for a lot of people to accept. But you have to be realistic about what Scripture teaches. And so we understand that not everyone is going to inherit uh, this, uh, this, this, 
heaven that God has set aside for us. The passage, in fact, the passage we're going to look at tonight talks about some who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now remember we talked about this inheritance sometimes is referred to as the eternal kingdom, and that's the idea here. And so some, not everybody's going to inherit it. Those who are qualified, those who are sanctified. And here is a, a, a list, a discussion of some who will not inherit. And again, that's, that's not a, a real pleasant thought for anybody really that there are some who won't inherit. And some people really resist that idea. But it's what the Scriptures teach. And so if we're going to preach the Word, well, then we're going to have to preach that some will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll just put the passage up on the screen, and we'll work our way through it and uh, consider some who will not inherit the kingdom of God and uh, see how that might apply. Paul begins this particular passage with a, a general statement. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so who's not going to go to heaven? Well, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous are not going to go to heaven. The righteous are those who practice righteousness. To be righteous is to be conformed to God's moral standards. So that's kind of the fundamental idea. To be righteous or to do righteousness is to conform to God's moral standard. And so when God says, don't do this, we don't do that if we're practicing righteousness. And when He says, do this, well then we do that. And so we conform to God's standard of right and wrong. And so that's what it means to be righteous or to practice righteousness. Now from one point of view, none of us is righteous because all of us have sinned. And so Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, you know, consider your righteousness as filthy rags. And so none of us is, is righteous in the absolute sense. All of us have sinned. You might have thought of Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, which says in a very straightforward way, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none that understands. There is none who seeks for God. And so in, in, from one point of view, none of us is righteous because all of us sin. But God has forgiven us, or God will forgive us, and so we have a righteousness which comes from God. It's, it's given to us by God. We are made righteous by the power of God. It's not our own righteousness. It's the righteousness that God supplies us. And so Rome, uh, Philippians 3 verse 9, Paul says, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so from one point of view, none of us is righteous in ourselves because of our own goodness and moral, you know, moral good, good, uh, goodness. We are made righteous when God forgives our sin. But then we are expected to practice righteousness, to live a righteous life, to conform to God's standard of right and wrong. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 says, or verse 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And so verse 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him. So the one who practices righteousness is righteous. 
The one who practices sin then is unrighteous. So here's a very general statement to open up this passage. Don't you know that the unrighteous, those who practice sin, those who do not conform to God's standard of right and wrong, those who are ungodly in their lives, when God forbids a thing, they do it. When God uh, commands a thing, they don't do it, <laughs> so, at least to, to some degree. And so they are unrighteous. And, and Paul says, that the unrighteous, they're, they're not going to go to heaven. Again, that's hard to swallow for some folks, but that's a fairly straightforward statement, isn't it? And then he has a list of ten actions, behaviors, that... Uh, kind of elaborate on the idea of being unrighteous. Ten examples of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly enough, they fall into two categories, and not all of them fall into, neatly into these two categories, but generally speaking, there are two categories of unrighteous conduct. Uh, one has to do with sexual behavior. The other one has to do with money, you know. Sex and money, who'd have thought it, huh? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here are some specific ways in which you can act unrighteously, and therefore you won't qualify to inherit what God has reserved for those who are sanctified. And so we're just going to work our way through the list. The first one on the list, as it is so often in the New Testament, is fornication. Fornication refers to all types of illicit, inappropriate sexual behavior. It's condemned throughout the Bible. And, and uh, there are not many sermons that go by in which we don't at least read one of these passages or at least allude to it. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. Okay, a general word that includes all types of illicit uh, sexual behavior, sexual behavior that's not approved of by God. Really, all sexual behavior except that between a husband and his wife. Everything else is fornication. Hebrews chapter 13 makes that, makes that clear, doesn't it? Hebrews 13 and um, verse, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So marriage is an honorable estate. The marriage bed is undefiled. Simply another way, kind of a euphemistic way of referring to sexual activity between a husband and wife. Now that, that's, you know, that, that's undefiled. That's, that's good and right in the sight of God. But outside of marriage, this kind of behavior is is, uh, as he says here, God will judge, is, is sinful. We see it among the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, and see it in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Ephesians 5 and verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. Don't know that we need to read all of those. We've, we've read those many times. There's a long list of inappropriate sexual relationships in the Law of Moses. In Leviticus chapter 20, a lot of those have to do with family relationships and who is forbidden within, within a family relationship. And not all of them, but, but many of them would have to do with that. Sexual sin has always been a problem. It was a problem in the ancient world. It was a problem in Corinth. It's a problem in our world today. I, I really believe it's always been a problem. You know, sometimes people hear older people say, well, you know, we didn't have that problem when I was growing up. Well, 
He didn't know about the problem, but I think it was, it's been a problem uh, uh, all the time. And maybe it wasn't spoken of as openly back then as it is today, but, but I, I tend to think it's always been a problem. A sexual desire is very strong desire within us, and people often yield to it without regard for God's will. Paul is clear, isn't he? Those who practice sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. I've heard people say, well, you know, people just don't think in the same way about these things as, as we used to. And we used to think, one, and, and, and things have changed. You know, our thinking about sexual behavior and sexual mores and all of that, that that's, that's developed. And, and things are different today than they were back then. Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't deny that, you know. People may think differently about it today, but, you know, the Word of God hasn't changed. And right and wrong doesn't depend on, you know, the whims and the trends of contemporary culture. And so the Word of God stays the same. And Paul says, again, very clearly, that those who practice fornication will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul continues, we tell you, said fornication is a word that's very general in nature, includes all sorts of inappropriate uh, sexual conduct. God's Word makes it inappropriate. It's what God has to say about it that makes conduct appropriate or inappropriate. But then he also includes some specific sexual sins as well. The next one is adultery, a specific type of fornication. When a married person engages in sexual behavior with someone other than his or her spouse, was forbidden under the law of Moses, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 18. And in Leviticus 20, the passage we looked at just a moment ago, or at least alluded to a moment ago, tells us that both the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death under the law, under the law of Moses. And so it's uh, very strongly condemned under the law. I tried to do a little research on this, which means I Googled it, you know, and looked at, uh, tried to find some statistics on this. But the best I could, I could, I could see is about, about one in five marriages is affected by adultery. Now, you see statistics from, that'd be about 20%, 20% all the way up to 40%. So it's a little bit hard to determine uh, a percentage. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, the research depends on people answering questionnaires, answering them truthfully and honestly and openly. And so when it comes to this kind of behavior, you kind of wonder if people are straightforward or not. But, but maybe a, about 20%, one in five marriages affected by adultery. And so it's not uncommon in our world today, is it? And again, Paul says, people who practice this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now there's another aspect of adultery that we need to touch on as well. In the book of Matthew, chapter 19, some Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask Him what, you know, I'm sure they thought was a very difficult question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for every cause? A lot of discussion about that question during Jesus' day among the Jews and a variety of opinions. And so they try to draw Jesus into the controversy. Jesus says, haven't you read that He created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So the answer is no. Is, the, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? 
What God has joined together, man is not to separate. Man can separate that, but he's not supposed to, you know. And so the, the answer is no. Well, they come back with another question. Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, well, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, and whoever marries her who's been put away commits adultery. So Jesus says, this is Jesus' statement, Jesus says, whoever divorces except for fornication, except for infidelity, and marries another, that second marriage is adultery. That's a, a sort of a, a new aspect of adultery, one that maybe we haven't considered before. And whoever marries one who's put away commits adultery. All right, and, and so Jesus, um, Paul says, again, straightforward, adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that applies to a lot of people in our world, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it does. People have lived just in disregard to what the Scripture says. You know, people may, people may, may have Bibles in their home, have a Bible on their bookshelf, and it's right there, they can read it, but just, just live in disregard to what Scripture says. Well, we don't want to do that. If we do that, we run the risk of not inheriting the kingdom of God. Well, let's move on. He talks about the effeminate. And, and homosexuals. Homosexual translates a rather graphic term in, uh, in Greek. The, the term homosexual is a relatively new word. It wasn't coined until the late 19th century. I uh, was asked one time, why is it that the older King James, you know, the previous King James, not the new King James, but the one we've used prior to that, doesn't say homosexual. It says abusers of themselves with men or something like that. Why, why does it? Well, the word homosexual hadn't been coined in 1611 when the King James Bible was done. Of course it is today, and so you see it in the newer versions of the Bible. But the Greek word is a pretty graphic word. It's the word for male, you know, males and females, the word for male combined with the word for bed, the word uh, coites. And so it's men who go to bed with men in a pretty vivid, pretty graphic uh, way. And so those who practice this sin, what does Paul say? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then the word effeminate translates a word that's elsewhere translated soft. It occurs four times in the New Testament. Three times it refers to soft clothing. But she's outside the New Testament as well in different ways. You know, words have a range of meaning, and this, this word is no different. But it includes the idea of soft or delicate or dainty. And, and so here it is a figure of speech. And so those who are dainty, those who are soft, and, and that's just that's a figure of speech, isn't it? It's sort of a euphemism. A euphemism is a less harsh word that's put in the place of a more harsh word or a less offensive word that's put in the place of a more offensive word. And so the, the, he uses the word soft here rather than something that's very vivid and explicit and might, might, might come across as harsh sounding. It refers to a man who presents himself to another in an effeminate way for inappropriate purposes. 
It's a man who presents himself as a woman for inappropriate purposes. He's effeminate. Which I think this word would apply to the current uh, transgender issue as well. Uh, Homosexual conduct is clearly condemned in Scripture. This is one passage that condemns it, but it's condemned elsewhere. Look at Romans chapter 1. It's condemned in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10 in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. God gave them over, since they refused to have God in their knowledge, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so this, this practice, this conduct, clearly condemned in Scripture. Now again, the attitude of Americans toward homosexuality has changed over the last 50 years. I've lived long enough to see, to see that change, and others have as well. But, but Scripture has not changed. And we, we may know people. Uh, we may be friends with people who are caught up in this lifestyle or in this kind of conduct. But if our... And, and there, there's a, maybe the, the, the tendency to change our views along with the culture. Now, the messaging in the culture, in entertainment and government and news programming and advertising and education, the the messaging is this, this is an acceptable lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with with this conduct. But if our thinking is shaped by Scripture, if our thinking is determined by Scripture, you see, we just can't accept it. Again, we may have friends that are caught up in in that and may in in other ways be wonderful people. But if our thinking is shaped by what Scripture says, we we just can't accept this. It's, It's just not acceptable. Paul says, those who practice this can't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And parents, we especially need to instill in our children right from wrong on the matter. All they're going to hear from the culture around them them is that this is perfectly acceptable behavior. That's all they're going to hear consistently from various sources. And so we have to combat that and we have to instill in our children what Scripture says. This is what the Word of God says. And it's not going to change. (laughs) Society may change. Uh, Culture's thinking may change. But the Scripture will will not change. Paul talks about idolaters. Idolatry sometimes involves sexual behavior, but not necessarily. Worshiping idols and false uh, false gods that the idols represented was very common in the Greco-Roman world. In Acts 17, verse 16, Paul saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. The city was full of idols, and no doubt Corinth was very much like it. Eating meat in an idol's temple was a problem in Corinth. This might be a situation we're a little unfamiliar with. We, we don't see many idols in our city, although some religions, there are many gods. In, in Hinduism, there, there are many gods and many goddesses. 
But idolatry is listed here among behavior that will keep a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. We saw from Romans chapter 1 just a moment ago, there are some who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And uh, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so idolatry will keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God. There are three things mentioned in the list that have to do with money. Thieves and covetous and swindlers. Now Paul's mentioned two of these already in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, do you not know that, uh, let's see, is that right? Um, that's not, verse 10, the thieves and covetous and drunkards uh, will uh, not inherit the kingdom of God. Earlier in the chapter, he's dealing with those who take their brethren to court and to law over matters of this life. I think the passage I was looking for is back in chapter 5 and verse 10, where we're told not to associate with immoral people of this world, covetous or swindlers or idolaters, and so forth. And so he's already brought all of this up. And it was a problem in Corinth, being covetous and maybe being a swindler. You have Christians taking their brethren to court over things of this life, things that, that are of this world that they should not have been doing. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. And so the love of money will motivate a person to steal. And so he talks about thieves in this passage. Those who are thieves will not go to heaven. <laughs> They're not inherit the kingdom of God. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Now, I don't think anybody here uh, will, will break into someone's house and, and steal what they've got. I don't know. I don't think anybody here is a con man running a con on people. I don't think so. I don't think anybody here is an internet scammer. Not, not that I know of. I'd be surprised if we were. But the temptation to steal is still there. To uh, see something you want in a store, maybe put it in your purse or put it in your pocket, walk out, is stealing. Shoplifting is, is stealing. Or in, uh, if we're working in the office, just take some supplies that don't belong to us. They, they belong to the company. So, but we take those home and we keep... It, it's, it's stealing. And so we don't want to be thieves. Thieves are not going to go to heaven. The covetous. Covetousness is simply greed. Wanting what we don't have and resorting to any means necessary to get it. In Colossians 3 and verse 5, covetousness is identified as idolatry. And then he talks about swindlers as well. Swindlers are dishonest in some sort of business matter, some sort of business affair. Certain occupations might come quickly to mind when we think about swindlers, but uh, I don't want to cast aspersions on anybody, so I want to mention them specifically. You probably know who they are. <laughs> Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 20, uh, for example, and verse 14. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes his way, he boasts. Oh, this is terrible. Now, they got all this. This is, oh, this is, this is a piece of junk. And then, well, you know, I, I really took him for a ride, you know. So we're, we're, be careful that we, we're not swindling. And then same, same passage, 
A little bit further down, verse 17, Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth is filled with gravel. And so you kind of cheat somebody out of something to your advantage. You think you got away with something, but in the end, you don't really enjoy it because you know you've been dishonest in acquiring it. Be careful about our attitude toward material things. You know, the, the inappropriate attitude will lead to sin, stealing, or being covetous, or swindling. He mentions drunkards as well. From the time of Noah, drunkenness has been cast in a negative light. Remember, Noah got drunk and left himself uncovered in his tent, and his son saw him and went out and and told his brothers about it in, again, an inappropriate way. From that, from that time forward, drunkenness has always been cast in a negative light. Becoming involved in alcohol, I believe, at, at any level, is a very unwise thing. I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 23 that addresses the problem, beginning in verse 29. Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaining? who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Here's his advice. Don't look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent. And so you have a, a process there, the, the beginning and, and the end. Don't, don't, don't get started in it because at the end, it's going to bite you like a serpent. We'll do things under the influence of alcohol. We'll do things we would never do otherwise. Sexual sin or murder or driving drunk and wife beatings, all the result of drunkenness. And we might add that it applies not just to alcohol, but any substance that impairs our judgment and results in a loss of self-control. Those who get involved with it are not wise. And then finally, he mentions revilers. Back here in, in, in our passage, 1 Corinthians 6, revilers. To revile means to malign or slander or to abuse verbally. Paul was the object of slander in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 12, as was Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. It, it occurs to me that we're becoming a more abusive, we're becoming more abusive and extreme in our criticisms of others. Uh, the, the language that's used is stronger. It's, it's uh, more extreme. If somebody disagrees with somebody politically, from the way they talk about those people, you think it was the devil incarnate. You know? <laughs> the, the language is just over the top. But be careful that we're not reviling over matters that really, as far as our eternal destiny, matter not a whit, actually. Very, very little. The name-calling, the belittling, the demeaning, misrepresenti misrepresentation meant to discredit the other, the false accusations, all should be avoided by Christians. Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, uh, comes to mind. And so be careful in our speech. Now notice the exhortation at the beginning. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. The, the teaching of Paul here is, sometimes we use the word counter-cultural. The city of Corinth and the Greco-Roman world lived a very different life than the way Paul teaches. 
It's different from our world as well. What Paul teaches is different from the way many people live in the world. It's counter-cultural. It's against the cultural trends, the contemporary way of living. We live in a society surrounded by values much different than the values taught in the Bible. We live in a materialistic society, in a a pleasure-seeking society. And it would become easy for us to be sympathetic to the thinking of our world. After all, we live in the world and we are exposed to this way of, this worldly way of thinking. And, and it'd be easy for us to become sympathetic to the way of thinking that's prevalent in the world. We cannot be deceived. It's especially important for us to teach our children God's will. They're in a vulnerable position when it comes to Satan's lies about these things. Don't be deceived. I, thinking about, I thought about entitling the sermon, There's Good News and There's Bad News. <laughs> what do you want first? Well, here's, here's the bad news. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That they had been involved in these things, their situation had changed. Paul mentions three factors in that change. You were washed. People are washed in the blood of Christ when they are washed in the waters of baptism. In Revelation 7 verse 14, the great multitude washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Saul of Tarsus was told to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We are washed in the blood when we are washed in the waters of baptism. Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to the city of Corinth, and the Corinthians were baptized. And so Paul can say, he knows, you've been washed. You can begin again. This is what you were doing, but you were washed, and you can begin again. You are sanctified. To be sanctified is to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes. They were made holy when their sins were forgiven, it's our sin that defiles us. And when that which defiles us is taken away, well, when we're sanctified. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we're, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we've been chosen. And so we've been set apart for God's purpose. We've been made holy. Now, since we've been sanctified, since we've been set, up, set apart, we're obligated to live a holy life. And so pursue sanctification. You've been sanctified, now pursue sanctification. You, you can start over again. And you've been justified. They've been made right with God. In the, they've been right, made right in the sight of God on the basis of faith in Christ by God's grace in response to their obedience to the gospel. Romans chapter 6 uh, uh, speaks to that. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves to obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we're made right with God when uh, by our faith, by God's grace, in Christ, by obedience to the gospel. And all of this is accomplished by God in the name of Christ, 
by the Spirit of our God. And so these three words, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, reflect a great change in the status of the Corinthians from alienation from God to fellowship with God. And so we've been called into fellowship with God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, called into fellowship with Him when we were washed, when we were sanctified, when we were justified. Now, let's look at the first part of this verse. And such were some of you. Notice the past tense of the statement. Such were some of you. Some of the Corinthians, some of the Corinthian Christians had been involved in these things that we've talked about in the past. But they're no longer involved in them. Such were some of you. None of the sins are so much a part of us that we cannot turn from them. That we cannot put them, be- put them behind, put them away from us, and not participate in them any, long- any longer. The adulterer can stop his adultery. The alcoholic, the drunkard, he can stop his alcoholism, bring it under control. A homosexual can alter his behavior. Don't let anybody convince you that it can't be done. It can be done. (laughs) The Scripture says, such were some of you. And then in addition to that, every one of these sins can be forgiven. Sometimes we treat certain sins as especially heinous. And some sins, in fact, do have more serious consequences than others, of course. But no matter what the sin is, it can be forgiven. They participated in these sins, but they were washed and sanctified and justified. Now those things are out of your life, and you can start over again. And so sometimes we say that it doesn't matter how many sins we've committed in our past, they can all be forgiven. And it doesn't matter how big the sin is in our past, it can be forgiven. All sin that we want to turn from and seek forgiveness for can be forgiven. That's what this passage teaches us. And so, there's the good news. We had some bad news in the passage, but we're going to end with the good news. It may be that we have sin in our life. Maybe we've talked about a sin that's in your life. Maybe you know of another sin that's in your life, not mentioned in this particular list. But you can be washed and sanctified and justified and begin your life all over again. God gives us that opportunity. He's He's wanting us to accept it. He's not wishing that any should perish. When all, it's all to come to repentance. And so the offer is waiting if we'll accept it. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have given your word to us, that we can read it, that we can understand it, that we can see what's pleasing to you, and we can see what's not pleasing to you. Help us, Father, to avoid those things that are not pleasing. Help us, Father, to put those things that are not pleasing to you out of our lives. Help us to turn away from them. Father, we're going to ask you to wash them in the blood of Christ so that we might be sanctified in your sight and justified in your sight. Help us, Father, to obey your word. And... uh, If there are those here tonight that need to confess their faith and turn from sin and be baptized and thus wash their sins away, we pray they'll seek the opportunity and take it. But if there are those of us who are Christians who have sin in our lives that, that we need to eliminate, Father, help us to eliminate them. We don't want to face the prospect of eternity 
without inheriting the kingdom of God. We're so thankful that you've made it available to us. And so, Father, help us. Help us to do those things that we need to do in order to gain access to it. Help us to be sanctified. Help us to be qualified to inherit what you've reserved for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're ready to respond to the invitation of the